Hey everybody, welcome back to another lecture in my dining room. This is week 10. So here we are, we've arrived at the end of the first remote instruction term. Uh, it's definitely not going to be the last, certainly not because summer is going to be remote instruction. I have a feeling that fall is going to be as well. Um, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about remote instruction and uh, what it is that I'm going to be asking for from you to help me move forward into the summer and into the fall term to try to uh, take the experience here and make it better for everybody uh, moving forward. Uh, I'll talk about that on uh, the next lecture, the wrap up and lessons learned and some of the lessons learned are going to be what it is that uh, we've learned, I've learned, because you're not going to talk, but I'm going to ask for feedback from you from this particular uh, experience. So in this essentially last uh, content-oriented, specifically content-oriented lecture of the class, the topic is democracy, liberty, and public reason. I don't want to forget to do my Vanna White side here. It's uh, self-quarantine count day 82, moving along towards 100. Uh, day 100 for me actually happens to be summer solstice. So uh, that is a kind of momentous day. So I'm, I'm planning some kind of celebration for that. I hope that, uh, I hope that everybody watching this ha is able to have some kind of celebration around the solstice and around all of the burgeoning of summer and blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to get the lecture because that's what I'm here for. Uh, we've taken a tour through a variety of critics of liberalism. Certainly not an exhaustive tour, and certainly not a necessarily an extraordinarily deep dive into any of the particular critics. Uh, uh, and even though this is a 400 level class, and we've, I think, operated at a relatively high level of uh, um, uh, difficulty in terms of the reading material and uh, the um, re you know, importance and depth of the ideas, each of these lectures could have been an entire class. There could have been a set of readings and a set of lectures and discussions and assignments that took 10 weeks to accomplish. So this has been a tour through liberalism and its critics, and if there are uh, any of the specific topics that interested you, you could, there's, there's way more to go down. Uh, it's always a challenge for me knowing in almost all of these political theory classes, whatever you talk about, there's always going to be an entire semester or years worth of material that could go off in that particular direction. But part of what I hope to accomplish in this class is to give you a sense of, one, what are the core concepts that tie together the liberal family of ideas that, that make somebody uh, or a set of ideas, a set of claims, a, a writing, a political platform or approach, what makes those legitimately liberal? Uh, deserving of that label uh, and contributing to the ongoing, now centuries-long discourse that's developing liberal ideas. And then we went through, I want, so I wanted to give you a sense of what that family of ideas looked like uh, and what the core ideas were and how there are variations and disagreements even within liberals, and then to, to, to go through, take a tour of the, some of the most important, incisive, uh, historically important, and also I would say uh, intellectually incisive critics of uh, the liberal family of ideas. Today is kind of a hybrid day in terms of, uh, I want to come back to the liberal family of ideas and I also want to continue uh, talking about the critics because one of the interesting things about liberalism is that it is itself within, not without its critics, obviously, uh, that's part of what is uh, why I call it a family of ideas instead of a political ideology, because there's family squabbling, even within the family. Um, there are also different ideas about what is the core of liberalism and what direction to take it. Uh, and 
Today's class kind of gets at that intra-family feud, um, but it also has a sort of critic side to it. Because So the ideas are democracy, liberty, and public reason. Um, liberty is obviously return, like we're going to talk about liberty, and its relationship to democracy. Uh, democracy has an interesting place within the liberal discourse. Uh, and this is part of what is, has made the uh, driven forward developments and, and uh, evolution and transformation within the liberal family of ideas itself is the place of democracy. Um, democracy originally was seen largely as uh, an instrumental value. Uh, so when liberal democratic political systems were set up, the democratic aspects were seen as being checks on the power of the government to keep the government in line with its core liberal mission of uh, defining and protecting rights. So democracy was an instrumental value. It's a thing that serves liberalism as a necessary tool, right? And it's not just that it's an optional tool. It's, a, it, it's seen as essentially uh, built into the liberal project that the political form is going to take a democratic, uh, democ the, the political manifestation of liberal ideas is going to take a democratic form. So you can't have a kind of a liberal authoritarian system. I mean, in theory, that's available, right? Because if the core of political liberalism is that uh, it's rational for so uh, individually sovereign, liberty-seeking individuals, liberty-valuing individuals, to establish some kind of uh, institutional framework for uh, determining where the harm principle boundary goes, policing that boundary, ensuring that threats to the crossing of that boundary are addressed, either through punishment or through preventative methods. Um, so basically, a political system is an essential aspect unless you believe that the harm principle can be self-defined and self-maintained. Um, and that is the anarchist position, and one of the things that w we didn't get to in this class, one of, the, one of the critics that I left out, is the anarchist critic. And I think I've alluded to anarchist ideas here and there in, in the various lectures, but I haven't really uh, done a deep dive into them. Um, partly because I don't really, myself, personally think that the anarchist critique of liberalism is all that incisive. And the reason I think that is because I just don't see a way to believing that the harm principle can be self-defining and self-enforcing. Uh, there are some things that anarchists say about what it is that power structures and institutions and cultures do to bend human nature in a particular direction to make it look like we need more power, that make it look like we need these institutions, and that make it look like we need police and armies. Um, so there, there, there is, I think, an interesting uh, critique uh, coming from anarchists. But the, the basic idea that we can do without the political form, some political form, uh, and still respect individual sovereignty, I just I, I find that to be far-fetched. Um, <clears throat> so again, not that the anarchist critique of various aspects of uh, our culture and of capitalism uh, and of the way people relate to power isn't useful and incisive, but I, but I just don't see the anarchist critique of liberalism. We don't need a political form in order for human beings to uh, get along, to cooperate, coordinate, collaborate, and keep their mitts off of each other's rights. I, I just don't see that as being very realistic. Um, but, uh, so, I've accepted the basic premise of liberalism that in order to manifest and respect individual sovereignty requires a political form. Now, in theory, that political form could be authoritarian um, in the sense that if 
what the political institutions are doing is defining the harm principle as a boundary between permissible social action and impermissible social action, or the domain between public and private spheres, or the domain between the individual sphere of liberty and uh, where uh, public power is permissible, however you decide to, to characterize that boundary, it's all the same boundary. Um, it needs to be defined and it needs to be enforced because it's not obvious where that boundary is. To, to just say that my rights to do whatever I want uh, extend as far as possible until I begin to harm other people is to only lay down a conceptual framework for deciding where that boundary is. It's not to determine where that actual boundary is. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of like saying, okay, let's, let's say that, that, that we have a continent and uh, we want to say, okay, there's going to be two countries on this continent and the boundary between those two countries is where the climate changes, right? That's like that, that doesn't really tell us where the line's gonna be. We're gonna have to do more work. We're gonna have to define what the climate is. Uh, and we're gonna have to figure out what are gonna be the criteria. So saying that that's gonna be what the boundary is doesn't help us actually figure out where the boundary belongs. Um, <clears throat> there, uh, there are other ways to actually set a boundary, like we could use the continental divide, which is unambiguous. We could say that the, 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 the uh, boundary between these two countries is where uh, the exact line is that water that lands flows to the Atlantic Ocean directly or to the Pacific Ocean directly. The Continental Divide actually would provide a line. Um, the harm principle, unfortunately, is not like the Continental Divide. It's not something that we can just mechanically apply. So uh, we need, because of the you know, uh, in indeterminacy of the harm principle, uh, as a guide. It's a great guide, and it's conceptually it totally stands up, right? There's, it's very difficult to, to say, well, if we're going to value individual sovereignty, um, we either value it all the way and let people do whatever the hell they want, regardless of how it harms other people, or we shrink it down to only some small core. It really conceptually, it, it holds up as an idea of, of where is it that my individual sovereignty gives way to public power? How do we decide where that is? In theory, the, an authoritarian political institution could determine what that line is. But even in theory, that makes less sense than giving people a chance through a system of popular sovereignty, a democratic system. Because if what we're trying to do here is determine where individual sovereignty ends and public power begins, it seems to make sense to let the people who are going to have to uh, deal with the consequences of where that boundary is to give them a voice in it. Um, but we can still say that, no, actually what's better is if we have some outside force, some, uh, some, an authoritarian ruler who decides where that boundary is and then enforces it. And uh, in theory, if that authoritarian uh, either person or system were liberty-loving, respecting of individual sovereignty, undertook the determination of the harm principle boundary uh, in all the areas where it would have to be with a kind of an objectivity and uh, a, uh, you know, a process, a rational process that people could recognize as being a really good way of determining where that boundary is. Um, something like the continental divide, because even though you know, the continental divide is like, it, it does tell us that there is an exact line. So a drop of rain falls in one spot, it goes to the Pacific. If a drop of rain falls in another spot, it goes to the Atlantic. Um, we still would need to do some investigating to figure out where that is. So the, the, the authoritarian government could do that, could do it with a public process and publish its data, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, in theory, would be actually great because what that would do is that would actually free up individual uh, 
uh, people to spend more time inside their uh, individual sphere of liberty and less time in the public forum disputing, arguing about, and pushing for the harm principle boundary to go in a particular place. Uh, it's time-consuming. Popular sovereignty is time-consuming. It's resource-heavy. Uh, it produces controversies. It gets people to, to disagree with each other and to potentially hate each other for having different views on this. Uh, you know, like, is it necessary to exclude immigrants? Uh, yes or no? Is it necessary to stop people from smoking in restaurants? Yes or no? Um, is it, uh, you know, all the questions that can get asked. Those are just two examples. Uh, those are going to create, it's an energy suck. It's going to create controversy. Why not? have an authoritarian government that takes that away from people, saves them the effort and the controversy and, 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 and all of the energy and time that goes into that, and just set the harm principle boundary and enforce it. Um, again, part of the reason not to is that since where that line is does concern every individual, taking away their voice in having an impact on that is in fact disrespecting their individual sovereignty by uh, saying, okay, we're not going to translate individual sovereignty into popular sovereignty for this public question that we have to answer in order to have a liberty-loving system. We're going to just turn it over to some external authority. It also doesn't make sense because an authoritarian system of government uh, is going to have a tendency towards uh, increasing its power at the expense of its citizens. It's going to be increasingly distant from uh, sort of public process of decision-making. Uh, there are going to be internal dynamics that are going to make an authoritarian government tend the direction of dictatorship as opposed to a kind of liberty-preserving technocratic system. So uh, that's the real reason from uh, like a, a kind of a realistic pragmatic point of view to not have an author a, a, a liberal authoritarian political form. So democracy makes sense philosophically because Individual sovereignty is translated into popular sovereignty, and also the popular sovereignty is a check on the tendency of an authoritarian form to become less liberal, less responsive to the people, more dictatorial, uh, that, the, sh that the, uh, the sphere of individual sovereignty will tend to be shrunk by an authoritarian government. Uh, even, even if it starts off with a, with a good-hearted uh, ruler and with an internal system of checks and balances, without that external system of checks and balances of the people's voice, it's going to tend to decay, either quickly or slowly. It kind of depends on what the political culture of the, of the nation is, but either quickly or slowly, but inevitably. So under, in this story about the sort of uh, you know, hypothetical, well, could we have, we need a political form to define the harm principle boundary and to enforce it and to essentially preserve individual sovereignty within this sphere of, of liberty, we need a political form, authoritarianism isn't available to us, and so democracy is what's left. Right? To not quote, I hope, I always want to do the quote, but to paraphrase Winston Churchill, uh, and maybe I'll actually nail the quote, uh, democracy is the worst possible form of government except for all the rest. Uh, and in, in this sense, democracy is, uh, in, this, in this perspective, I should say, democracy is a necessary evil. Uh, and what role does it play in a liberal society? It plays the role of a check. And it provides two checks. It provides both an external check. Regular elections give the people a chance to make sure that the uh, people who are occupying political offices and therefore exercising public power are doing so in a way that, give, that, that, that protects people's rights. And it gives people an ongoing chance to have their input 
without having to actually run for office and serve, into the decisions that are made uh, within the government as to where the harm principle line goes and how it should be enforced and what the most effective ways of uh, preventing transgressions and punishing transgressions uh, so that we can have uh, a high level of deterrence and at the same time to balance um, the use of resources that are necessary to protect rights because uh, one of the ironies of rights is that they're, since they're not self-enforcing, it takes resources to enforce them and, uh, and protect people's rights. And in order to get those resources, unless you can rely on voluntary contributions, which is highly unrealistic, then you're going to have to force people to contribute resources, usually tax money, but sometimes it could be, it could be their personal time, service, other resources. Um, you're going to for have to force people to contribute resources to the protection of their own rights. One of the things that people have an interest in in a liberty-loving society is making sure that that level of resources is kept to a minimum. And part of the argument in a liberal society, in the democratic uh, sphere, is not just where is the harm principle, but, uh, or excuse me, where, where, where is the harm line that is dictated by the harm principle, but also what resources are necessary to enforce that line and to make sure that within the sphere of individual uh, sovereignty, people actually are able to make free choices. So this is the positive-negative liberty uh, balance. So there are really two things, two big things, that the democratic system is doing in a, in a liberal society. One is they're providing an external and internal checks. The internal part are the separation of powers that are available in a, in a, uh, de in a democratic system where you have separate branches of government that have uh, overlapping uh, and checking powers over each other. And then the external check is, is, uh, is people uh, voting regularly for the people who occupy uh, those public uh, positions. The other thing that's going on is they're debating what is and isn't on this side of the harm principle, and also what resources do we need to provide inside the sphere of liberty uh, to make sure that people actually are having the realistic ability to make choices. And those are very controversial questions, and they, they touch on things that are extraordinarily important to how we live our lives. Right? Just the simplest question of, okay, we need to have a certain level of uh, resources provided to society to protect people's rights, which means we need police and an army to prevent against uh, um, internal domestic uh, rights violators and uh, external enemies who would take our freedom away from us. How do we, how do we generate the resources necessary to do that? Um, who's going to be taxed at what level? Um, it's, let's say there's going to be a combination of taxation and national service. Like, what's the length of time for national service? Is it one year? Is it five years? Um, it, who, who might be exempted from national service? Uh, every individual is going to have an interest in the outcome of these specific policy questions, right? Uh, let's say that there's a proposal to um, reduce taxation to almost nothing, uh, but have every citizen serve five years of national service in a combination of military and civilian positions. And some of the civilian positions are working for government enterprises that generate revenue that allow us to pay for things like police and fire protection and roads, uh, all, whatever, at schools, the, the, the necessities to make sure that people have uh, their rights protected and their positive liberty uh, guaranteed to them. That's a lot of time, but it saves people money. Now, if I'm a person who has very little money, uh, and but my time is really valuable to me. I don't like that scheme. That's five years of my life. I'd rather just be taxed over the course of my life. And I would rather have a progressive tax that if I make a lot of money, I pay more, and if I make very little money, I pay less, so that actually if 
I don't make a whole lot of money, I end up not spending a bunch of my time and I end up not spending a bunch of my money. I would prefer that. Other people might prefer, they might be like, hey, I have a lot of money uh, or my family has a lot of money and uh, I'll put my five years in and keep your hands off of our money because once I'm done with that five years, I will basically have an unlimited set of financial resources to uh, dedicate to my personal uh, exercise of individual sovereignty. So just that's one example. And it's, there are innumerable, innumerable examples of policy proposals. Every policy proposal impacts citizens in a differential manner, and that's one of the reasons why they disagree over uh, you know, policy A versus policy B versus policy C. Another reason they disagree is because of principle and value, right? Like uh, the idea of, well, is secondhand smoke, is that, does that cross the harm principle line or not? Some people uh, might say, well, I'm not a smoker, but I actually, but on principle, I don't think that's harmful. So I'm, I'm, I'm on the side of don't put the harm principle line there. So there are both material and ideological or value-laden reasons why people would disagree over any policy. The democratic arena is where, in a liberal view, these questions are battled out. Now. One of the things about liberalism is that democracy, I should put democracy up here. From a liberal point of view, democracy is one, it gives us individual sovereignty into popular sovereignty. That makes sense. Instead of individual sovereignty gets turned over to someone else, right? We are choosing within our own sphere, and we're also then having a voice in choosing in the public sphere, right? So um, it also is a check on power, both internal and external. Um, the purpose of both of these things, though, is to preserve the relationship between the government and the individual, right? So these things both preserve the limited state, limited government, I should say, preserve limited government. The government does one thing. It preserves and protects individual liberty. That involves a variety of activities. First of all, it involves defining what the harm principle is. Second of all, it, 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 it involves figuring out uh, what the most effective, least costly way of uh, um, enforcing that harm principle line. It also then determines which resources are necessary uh, at the, the most sort of efficient way and the balance between like taxation and national service and all of the different types of taxation. And then it also decides what public resources are going, to be, are going to be dedicated to make sure that everybody has a certain level of resources so they can make free choices. That's a lot. There's a lot that goes on. Limited government involves <coughs> excuse me, multiple tasks. And it could actually be pretty, it could, it could involve a pretty immense public apparatus. A limited government isn't necessarily the same as a tiny government. Um, now, one of, of course, one of the debates that's going to go on uh, within a liberal democratic society uh, is should the government be tiny or should it be vast, right? And there, there are going to be people who are both liberal, with a capital L, who uh, disagree on this 
this very question. And this is one of the things that makes the difference between a conservative and a liberal with a capital, with a small L and a small C, between Democrats and Republicans in the, in, in, in the United States, is their disagreement over a lot of the answers as to what does count as a limited government. But liberals have a consensus around the fact that the government should be limited to the role of um, protecting rights. That is the role. And so all of this stuff, this is the public forum. This is the democratic system. The purpose of having a public forum is to do this, is to figure out how do we, what do we do. The public forum is an attenuated public forum. There is uh, a controversial, changing, gray area line between public power and private uh, sphere of liberty. But that's the kind of political, social, economic universe that liberalism envisions us occupying, is where there are these two domains. And the, 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 each domain is defined um, in, in a way that actually excludes certain other uh, modes of being within that domain. So this is a liberal democracy, right? Um, liberal democracy. It's basically a means to an end. The public forum and the democratic system are a means to an end. And it also has a limited scope of action, okay? It might not be small, as I've said, there might be a lot of different things, but everything that goes on, let's say we have a vast uh, government apparatus in our liberal democratic society. Every single one of those activities is supposed to relate back to protecting rights. Um, and you know, some of those things might not look like protecting rights, but they will be always referenced back towards protecting rights. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, if you are making sure that people have subsidized health insurance, um, while some people might say, well, that's not about protecting rights, that's about pursuing the social good of uh, a healthy uh, society that cares about the physical well-being of its citizens. Um, that is, that's, a, that's an argument for subsidized or even totally socialized uh, health care. But in a liberal society, that argument isn't allowed. Uh, so when we argue for subsidized health insurance, the argument is going to be it's necessary for people's freedom to have this uh, backdrop, this set of resources available to them. That's the argument that will be made. So one of the things that um, happens in the public forum, right, the, the scope of disagreement is limited to this term, right? The scope is limited here. All political disagreements must reference back to the protection of rights. And that doesn't mean that there's going to be a lot of agreement. There's, there are so many, hopefully at this point in this class and way earlier in the class, you, uh, you know, by my main sort of operating point, that there's going to be all kinds of disagreements. There's going to be all kinds of po policies that people could advocate that vary greatly and that conflict with each other that all can uh, be legitimized as capital L liberal policies. Um, now, there will be one, there will be some policies that cannot be referenced back to protecting rights. Um, 
And then there will also be uh, forms of political argument that don't take the form of referencing people's rights. So for example, if somebody is proposing a socialized uh, uh, medical uh, healthcare system for, for the country or for a state, and they say that the reason why we're doing this is because it is our social duty as uh, all part of this greater whole of, the, of this nation to care about each other's well-being and to contribute materially and spiritually to the well-being of our fellow citizens. And uh, we can't do that if we don't have a healthcare system that makes sure that everybody has access to basic care, or even to say everybody has equal access to all the care that's available. There's no differential access. You can't pay for more uh, and uh, than what is provided to everybody. Everybody gets the same, not necessarily the same doctor and the same treatment, but the same level of access and opportunity. Uh, that is an argument, not from a liberal perspective. And that is, that really, there, that is a communitarian argument, more or less. There are other uh, ways, uh, there are other political perspectives that could, uh, could jump on the bandwagon with that particular argument. One of the things about liberalism is that it's not just about saying, okay, the government has to be limited in scope. It's about saying our public forum, our form of public reason has to be limited in reference back to liberty. Okay? So public reason must reference liberty. And therefore, democracy is, has to be, the, democracy is the place, right? Public reason goes through the public forum and the democratic system itself must always therefore reference liberty. For a large chunk of the lifespan of democratic theory, democratic theory was seen as uh, essentially a helper concept to the overall liberal project. Um, and it's really easy and natural to think of democracy as conjoined with liberalism. We, we live, we have in the United States a liberal democratic system. And so really, the, it's the liberal democratic idea is one of the biggest families within the liberal family of ideas. Uh, um, laissez-faire capitalism or even uh, um, uh, government regulated, heavily regulated capitalism, those are, that is the sort of form, the dominant form of uh, of economic liberalism. So uh, liberal capitalism is the economic cousin to liberal democracy. Democracy, however, one, has an older lineage, a way older lineage than liberalism. Um, and two, the lineage of democracy that is older uh, gives rise to a different set of ideas about what public reason and the public forum and the democratic system are supposed to be for, right? So the non-liberal version of democracy, or yes. Uh, and one of the things that has happened is because essentially liberalism subsumed as a helper concept democracy for a really long time, those who are in favor of what we can think of as a non-liberal version of democracy 
and Ill, illiberal makes it seem like it goes against liberalism, but I would I think it's easier to, to better to just to, to put it in the uh, neutral terms of non-liberal version. Um, they've had to kind of wrestle democracy from the death grip of liberalism, and a big part of what the uh, non-liberal version of democracy is is that democracy creates a vibrant, multi-dimensional. and necessarily inclusive public forum. And so the role of public reason within this version of democracy is a very different uh, version of public reason over here. So this is, actually I'm going I'm to change this because this is, this cycle right here, public reason is Exercise through the democratic system, the public forum, that's what, the, that's what a democratic system is, and uh, all of the public reason must reference liberty. This is the liberal version of democracy, right? I should, I'm going to asterisk that, because that's what this is, and that's what this is. From a non-liberal uh, version, democracy... I'll put a, a, a plus here, is an end in itself, or public reason, and or I should say, public reason is the working out of the communal life. Working out the terms of the communal life. What are we as a people going to do? for ourselves and as an expression of ourselves. In this version, popular sovereignty is not essentially a sort of theoretically savvy way of translating individual sovereignty into the public sphere. Popular sovereignty is a worthy concept in and of itself. There's a, there's a, there's a people and those people have a voice and what is that voice? Now, um, Part of the reason why it's a vibrant, multidimensional, inclusive public forum is that uh, there's a recognition that, uh, and this is where it's kind of, this is where it's part of the liberal family, it, there's a recognition that we're going to have a diverse, pluralistic society. And since we're going to have a diverse, pluralistic society, we're going to have a lot of different viewpoints on what it is that we should be doing with public power, right? How do we use public power? This question is answered here as well in a very simple way, to protect rights. That's how we use public power. That spawns a thousand and ten thousand sub-questions about, well, does this act uh, protect rights, does this act protect rights, but how do we uh, use public power? Here, the answer to this question, the liberal answer, this is the liberal answer, is we use it to protect rights. To advocates of democracy as it is not connected as a helper adjunct concept to liberalism would say, we use public power to define our common life. And so the part of the reason why it's a vibrant and multidimensional public debate is because the things that are advocated, 
the arguments that are had, the terms that are referenced, can include a discussion of rights, but they can go beyond a discussion of rights as well. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so important to be inclusive is because in a liberal democratic society, if you have an illiberal conception of the good, um, if you uh, don't think that tolerating diversity and accepting other people's individual choices, if you don't think, if you don't buy the, the essentially the liberal metaphysics, then in a way you're excluded from the democratic uh, system. You're excluded from the public forum. And this is actually one of the things that's problematic for liberalism. It, this is the tolerating the intolerant problem, right? You're allowed to participate in the public forum as long as you're tolerant of other people's voices and as long as you abide by the terms of the, the, the narrow terms of what the public forum is, is for. It's limited in scope to a discussion of what protects rights. Um, that doesn't require inclusivity. That in fact, in, to a certain extent, that requires exclusivity. Yeah, anyone or a group that can't do can't participate in the public forum by abiding by those ground rules is excluded. Um, and so, to a in a non-liberal version of, of democracy, there are no ground rules in terms of what can and can't be said, what can and can't be advocated, what issues can and can't be raised. Um, there are, however, then the question is, what are the ground rules for how this more vibrant, multidimensional, inclusive discourse is going to take place, right? So this is going to be a kind of a very heady, uh, uh, robust discourse. What does it take? Well, the form of public reason, the acceptable form of public reason in this version of democracy is going to be quite different than it is over here. Um, and now this is where uh, the class in democratic theory, I would say, takes us off in this direction and I don't really have time and don't want to do a really, really long lecture today or even a medium long lecture at all. So I won't go into all of the different conflicting, uh, competing ideas about what it is that the public forum should look like and what are the ground rules what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. But one of the, I would say the biggest, most important feature is that um, we define, how do we use public power? We're defining a common life and there are no automatic boundaries to that. And this is, this is really where I would say the example of communitarians uh, fits really well because communitarians are one version of a non-liberal idea of democracy. For communitarians, democracy is important, but it's important for different, a totally different reason than for liberals. For communitarians, democracy is where the common good is hunted for, and it's where choices are made to determine that some actions are acceptable and some actions are unacceptable, not because they do or don't violate people's rights, but because they do or don't contribute to the common good. And that it would be, therefore be allowable in a non-liberal version of democracy to come up with a policy that clearly violates people's rights. Um, so, for example, we could just say that, you know, we, we can enforce a dress code. Like, this is, this is probably the most trivial, but uh, I would say easiest and clearest example of a non-liberal policy that could be agreed to in a democratic, a non-liberal democratic system. A dress code. Um, and 
the reason why a dress code is non-liberal is because you know it would, it would be a real stretch to say that letting people wear uh, whatever they want to wear harms other people, right? Now, you can say that, that requiring clothing uh, is necessary because if people are going around naked, that could create a psychological harm. And that's going to be actually a very, even if we're using the harm principle as our deciding principle, or as our, as our, as our sort of reference uh, guidepost for conducting that debate, it's going to be tough. Like some people are going to say naked people walking around is psychologically harmful and it, it gets in the way of me making sure that, that my kids don't see stuff that they shouldn't see. And other people will be like, no, that's, that's not harmful. You, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's harmful. If people want to walk around with no clothes on, you can't impinge upon their individual sovereignty. So the clothing, no clothing argument uh, is going to be, uh, within a liberal society, is still, there's going to be, uh, both sides are going to have a case. Uh, it's probably going to be an easier case to make on one side or the other, but the argument will always reference back to protecting rights. In a non-liberal version of democracy, we could go beyond just like close or not close and say, here's a dress code that we want enforced because it expresses our commonality. Um, that everybody ought to wear a, a blue article of clothing at all times because blue is our national color, blue is the symbol of our unity and our connection with each other, and uh, the, the wearing, the enforced wearing of blue is a thing that shows that we all feel like we're in it together. It's a reminder and a symbol at the same time, uh, and it generates this unity. That's not liberal. It's not going to be a liberal policy. In fact, that's in the liberal policy. People are gonna have to do something that they would otherwise not choose to do, and it doesn't really seem like not wearing blue would be harmful to people. Uh, it would be harmful to certain people because they'd be like, I'm so offended that you're not wearing blue, the national color, that it, it actually psychologically you know, bends me around. But for the most part, not wearing blue isn't going to violate the harm principle. Yet, in this version of democracy, the public forum is open to that proposal. It's open to an argument for that proposal that doesn't have to refer to protecting people's rights. It can refer to something that is non-liberal, like uh, a sense of unity and belonging and togetherness. One of the things that is a kind of a, a, a common critique of liberalism from a variety of different perspectives is that Liberalism gives us an attenuated uh, experience of public life. And the public forum is a, admittedly attenuated uh, public forum. It's one where only certain kinds of arguments can be conducted in certain forms uh, through the democratic system and with certain norms and rules of behavior that uh, are agreed on. Um, that uh, in a non-liberal society, that's an attempt to, excuse me, from the pr perspective of somebody who, who looks at it from a different perspective, the, um, that is an attenuating thing. Public life could be more vibrant and multidimensional. Why? Why keep out of the public forum discussion of a dress code? Just because it doesn't refer back to, to protecting rights. Uh, now, the liberal answer to that is that, well, when you don't exclude certain things from the public forum, when you don't put certain policies off the table, um, policies that limit religious freedom, that limit uh, uh, personal freedom, that limit uh, um, you know uh, any essentially any kind of individual decision making. From the liberal point of view, if we don't keep those off the table, if we don't exclude them from the public forum, then we're going to end up with a society that doesn't value and respect people's choices. And yes, that's the case. But the cost of that 
these critics would, would reply, is that we have an attenuated public life. If the only thing you can do in the public forum is discuss the boundary of protecting rights and what resources are needed and what, what balance between uh, various kinds of taxation are going to provide those resources, then the public forum is a pesky, annoying place, and there's no wonder that so many people avoid the public forum in a liberal democratic society because it doesn't get them very much and uh, it doesn't create opportunities for them to debate about some of the things that might be really important to them. One of the biggest things is it prevents discussion of policies that will unify and connect and cohere people in some kind of larger community and feel as though they are connected to each other by more than just membership in an organization where they pay taxes to it and it protects their rights. Um, it attenuates that broader political community from being formed. Now, this is where democracy as a, a means to an end is also built in because if we're going to allow the people to define their common life along multiple dimensions of existence, not just what their rights are, but what, like, what are going to be some common forms of culture, some common forms of practice, some common uh, choices that, that uh, have to be made or choices that can't be made. Um, we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to have Friday be a day of rest collectively so that there's one day where everybody's not striving and that's going to be for the, for the spiritual wholeness of our people, that there's one day where everybody just sets everything down and takes a breath and looks at the sky and relaxes. That, that, that is a, a common good. That's, that's for the good of the people. Right? And that during every fourth version of that day of rest, we're going to have some kind of public ritual that's going to remind people that, they that they're all in it together, that they're connected, and everybody has to wear blue on that day or on all those days, uh, uh, whether they want to or not, because that's a reminder that we, all, that we have this common bond. To decide on policies like that, to adopt them, um, is one, illiberal, but two, it is, that's then dangerous even from a non-liberal point of view, unless there's a vibrant democratic uh, discourse that allows all the different voices to, to, uh, to, to uh, be heard and to have a chance at, at winning that policy debate. Because then what would happen is the system would just become the tyranny of some by others, right? Instead of defining a common life, we would be defining the uh, preferences of a, the winning group and imposing that on the losing group. So democracy actually in the non-liberal version of it is, is important instrumentally as well as kind of uh, expressively because we want to make sure that the definition of our common life doesn't turn into tyranny of one group by another group. And I almost said tyranny of the majority because that seems like how it would happen, but it could easily be tyranny of the minority, right? Whoever captures the political system uh, and is able to win policy battles is going to be able to define common life from their own perspective in a way that might really go against the perspective of other people. Now, it's going to be a robust discourse and it could actually be rowdy and it could look a lot like it could look it could it could look a lot different than the use of public reason in the liberal democratic forum 
Rawls is a, in the reading I gave you, he, he, he is a big advocate of the liberal model and that public reason is essentially attenuated to arguing about the political conception of the good. Because one of the things that, that Rawls takes very seriously is this, the liberal notion that individuals should be uh, defining and pursuing and revising and transforming their own conception of the good and that we can't, in a liberal society, foist a specific conception of the good onto individuals, or we're not respecting their individual sovereignty. Um, but we do need, in order to be able to have a, uh, a, a stable, just, well-ordered society, which is necessary for protecting rights, you can't have a, a protection of rights, an equal protection of rights, without those things, there's going to have to be some common ground, and that common ground is what Rawls refers to as the political conception of the good. And the purpose of public reason is to come to a collective decision about the political conception, not the broader conception, right? The political conception is smaller. It's a, it is attenuated. And in Rawls's case, that's intentional, and he thinks that's a good thing. For his critics, that is problematic, and it essentially reduces the possibilities for what the public forum is to one small subset of what the public forum really ought to be all about, which is to ask the bigger question, how do we, how do we use public power, how can we define our common life um, uh, in a way that we all feel as though we're doing more than just protecting rights. The political arena should not be just limited to a discourse about individual rights. Um, the model of public reason that, that Rawls holds up is uh, like the Supreme Court, because what the Supreme Court is doing is it's a democratic form, um, and uh, it's a particular kind of democratic form, but what it fosters is it fosters a kind of a debate centered around precedent, constitutional interpretation, a specific text. There's essentially a civil and highly technical uh, uh, reason-based, reason and evidence-based uh, process. For Rawls, that's the ideal, but all that the Supreme Court or any courts that are, that are functioning this way are doing is they're trying to figure out what is the political conception of that nation, right? Not the broader conception of the good, but the political conception. Uh, the non-liberal versions of democracy say that what we actually are allowed to fight over in the public forum is the broader conception of the good, not just the narrow political conception of the good. We're allowed to fight over the terms of our common existence, not just the boundary between my choices and public power. Uh, and the argument here is that uh, public reason is uh, exercised in this kind of democratic forum gives us human beings a multi-dimensional connection to each other. It also uh, treats us the way we exist, which is as deeply interconnected, instead of fundamentally separated. The liberal version is that we're fundamentally separated and our job is to carve out an arena in which people can be individuals and do their own thing. Um, the non-liberal version of democracy is no, democracy is actually the playground of deeply interconnected beings who are not in any meaningful way separated from each other. And that if we create a separation, like the liberals are asking us to do, then we are, we are imposing an artificial dis distinction, an artificial separation between people. Um, what we need to recognize is that we are deeply interconnected in all kinds of ways, and that our democratic system, far from uh, attenuating us from expressing and exploring all those multiple connections, ought to give us the chance to do that. Um, and in fact, it ought to incentivize it. 
Uh, part of the argument here, and or, or the claim, is that we will have a robust discourse and people will be drawn to the public forum when the public forum is a place where these fundamental questions can get hashed out. For Rawls, fundamental questions like what's the nature of the universe and what does it mean to be a good person and how should I go about living my life, those questions belong to the individual conception of the good and they have to be held out of the public forum at all costs. That's actually a big part of the boundary is to keep those questions out. Now, as I noted uh, in the lecture on feminism, one of the critiques, uh, the feminist critique, is that what that does is that that immunizes one entire giant area of life from any kind of uh, um, collective critique and transformation, and it, in, it immunizes or insulates the existing power structures in society when we don't get to crack open our entire set of interactions to public battle. Um, but, uh, and, and that is one good reason to also favor a non-liberal version of democracy. And certain, uh, the, the writers of the, of the articles for the uh, class in feminism agree with the notion that we should have democracy, but that it's a non-liberal version that isn't just limited to this discourse of rights. Because to them, the discourse of rights is always a discourse of protecting uh, male power uh, and uh, the, gender, uh, the, the, the uh, unequal gender distribution of benefits and, and burdens. Um, the, the patriarchy. Um, we have to open up the public forum to dismantling the patriarchy. And the liberalism says, no, 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 that's, that question of how do men and women relate to each other is, belongs outside uh, of the public forum. So there, I've given the communitarian perspective on the non-liberal version of democracy, that's the feminist perspective on the non-liberal uh, uh, non version of democracy. There are a number of other ways of saying we ought to have and when we get to have a robust discourse about all of the terms of our common existence, people are going to be pulled in to the public forum because it's going to, one, it's going to be way more important because it's not just about your rights, it's about your entire uh, existence. But two, it's going to offer what the liberal public forum doesn't, which is kind of sterile. It's going to offer multiple avenues of, of, of determining meaning of making connections, finding commonalities, feeling differences, and knowing what it's like to be different. It's going to provide actually a higher level of satisfaction to people to participate in a democratic system that is more a broader playground, that has more available to it uh, than the attenuated and potentially very sterile public uh, uh, forum in the liberal democratic society. So, it's noteworthy that democracy can be seen either as purely a means to an end, and the end itself provides us with a boundary around what the public forum is going to look like that attenuates it, or democracy can be seen in the other way as, as kind of, one, a means to an end to ask this question of how do we define our common life, but two, kind of an end in itself that will draw people in to participate and essentially enrich their lives and enrich their connections with their fellow uh, citizens. As it is, it's not surprising to critics of the liberal democratic uh, version of the public forum that people feel separated from each other, that we have divisiveness, that we have tribalism, that there's a, that there's a sort of win-at-all-costs uh, attitude to politics. It's because uh, in this version, like, 
you, you don't have, it doesn't foster connections between you. It puts you into an arena where policies are going to be decided that you either win or lose based on, and you know that. And so you're going to, some people are going to be pushed out of it, are going to be, be like, I don't want to do that because it doesn't even concern me or it's too ugly. Other people are going to get into it and be like, yeah, this is, this is what I want. I want to win. It's no, not surprising there's divisiveness and tribalism because it's based on this individualist notion, this separateness. I'm in, I'm in the public forum to get something for myself. The non-liberal version of democracy is that people are in the public forum, not to just advance their own interests or their own ideas about what's right and wrong, uh, but to collectively connect with others, or to connect with others in this uh, collective endeavor to continually define and redefine the terms of their common existence. Uh, to a person who's steeped in the liberal metaphysics, that we are separate individuals and that our individual sovereignty is, a, is like the burning flame in our hearts and the most important thing is preserving the largest uh, realm of personal freedom as possible, as well as, well as getting a, a, a chunk of resources that are necessary to, to exercise meaningful options. This kind of view of democracy can be frightening because it can sound like it's going to submerge the individual into the collective. Um, and I do think that there is that danger, but one of the things that is kind of a lively tension in this non-liberal discourse about democracy is how do you have a democratic system that allows people to argue, discuss, debate, decide on the collective terms of life across a variety of different domains without that system ending up uh, subsuming individuals into the collective without burying the individual differences. Um, that then becomes the uh, biggest question that needs to be answered in terms of setting up democratic forums, in terms of uh, um, what will it take to foster that kind of culture. For one thing, one of the things that it would require, I think anyway, is it would require a much more robust civic education. Um, we get in this in the United States, we get very little civic education, and part of that is, is because democracy is instrumental. It's a means to an end, and so you're allowed to participate in it or not. You don't really have a, a duty to vote or a duty to run for office. You have a duty to, to obey the law, pay taxes, and serve on a jury. A pretty narrow set of duties, right? And so how much civic education is necessary to make sure people uphold those duties? You just need to make sure that they're afraid to break the law and that they know that when they get called to a jury, they, they should go. Um, <clears throat> but uh, also, a civic education requires resources, and when part of the goal in a liberal democratic society is to make sure that as little resources extracted from individuals as possible, because every forcible extraction diminishes people's rights, then no wonder there's not going to be kind of this robust uh, uh, support for a broader civic education. In this kind of uh, view of democracy, a civic education is not only uh, um, uh, worth paying for, it's essential because what a civic education does is it fosters a culture of citizenship. It fosters a culture of participation. It fosters, one, a respect for the diverse pluralistic society as well as a desire to participate in this robust discourse, right? Um, to get into the arena. And that isn't, I would say that in our liberal society, it's definitely not natural. And it may or may not be natural to human beings to want to roll up their sleeves and get into the public forum and tussle over the common, uh, the terms of the, of, of the common existence of their fellow citizens. Um, but absolutely, that can be cultivated through a robust civic education. 
But that would take a lot of resources. And in fact, then one of the issues, one of the debates would be like, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to dedicate a decent chunk of our, of our social resources, of society's resources, towards a vibrant uh, civic uh, education. And a civic education doesn't, is, in this model, would be more than even what we, we know of that we have too little of, which is like, what's the government look like, and what are the laws, and what are the duties of citizenship, what values underlie our system. It would be that. But a, a civic education in, uh, of a more robust type would include like, an exploration of all of the different views and histories of the different people who uh, make up your people so that you would have a respect for the diversity and the pluralism. There would be a lot of time spent and a lot of energy spent learning the ways of life and the cultures that are subcultures within the broader culture. So that when you go into the public forum, one, you want to go into the public forum to experience people who, who, who uh, have grown up through a culture or, or, or through a particular ethnic or religious or racial or, or gender experience. But also, um, you uh, are, like, you're excited about that. But then when you're in there, you also then have a heavy level of respect for that person's perspective, their experience, you have a heavy, uh, you, have a, you have a strong sense of your own situation, your own privilege or lack of privilege, the obstacles that you have or haven't faced, that other people have or haven't faced. <clears throat> it provides, it would, so there would be essentially, there would be a lot more history, culture, uh, diplomatic skills would need to be taught in addition to just like mechanics, right? The civic education in our society, to the extent that we have it, is largely about the mechanics of our system. And then you have some duties, and your duties are obey the law, pay your taxes, serve on a jury. Right? It doesn't actually take that much. And yet we still, for the most part, we still fail to give enough of a civic education uh, to give people even a, an operating sense of what the mechanics of our political system are. So a more robust form of civic education would uh, essentially be history, culture, political skills, the teaching of diplomatic skills, right? When, when do Americans learn diplomatic skills? When do, when do we learn active listening? When do we learn how to frame our uh, words and actions in a way that are true to us, but not threatening to other people? When do we learn to understand the basis of our own privilege and the reasons why other people uh, might ha not have the same privileges that we have, but have different different forms of privilege and what that means, the differential nature of that fact. Like, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm a white man who is Muslim and there's a black woman who's Christian, uh, we each have different forms of privilege, right? If, you're, if, you, if you wear a chain around your neck, a, a, a Christ chain, that brings with it a certain kind of acceptance. There's a certain kind of privilege. You don't have to explain yourself in a dominantly Christian society, whereas if I'm wearing some kind of, you know, with some kind of religious uh, symbol that shows that I'm not part of the Christian majority, I have to explain myself, right? Um, <clears throat> no no, no uh, woman in America who wears a cross around her neck has to explain the cross, but a woman who wears the veil that covers her whole, her whole face has to, I mean, people don't actually necessarily ask them to explain, but there's an expectation like, well, why are you doing that? No, nobody says to a, to a person wearing a cross, I shouldn't say nobody, most people won't, why are you wearing a cross? So, uh, but then also for me understanding like, okay, so I'm a Muslim white man and the white man part gives me certain privileges. The Muslim part gives me certain, problem, uh, certain problematics. The uh, black woman has certain privileges. The black Christian woman has certain privileges at, by being Christian, but also then certain obstacles that I don't face by being a woman, by being a person of color. So just, I mean, it, it, it's actually quite complex 
when you think about what it would take to have this mutually respectful, mutual understanding among people that's necessary to make this form of democracy actually workable. Um, so, and then to be able to, you know, to, to, to actively listen, to be diplomatic, uh, to have a common language for understanding people's plight by understanding their history as well as your own. Right? I think one of the things that's problematic for white people in America right now is that we know there's been, we know about slavery, we know there's been ra uh, racial inequality, we know about Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King, but really that's more or less the extent of the average white person's education, uh, historical education about uh, the inequ racial inequalities in our country and about black struggles. There's all kinds of uh, events that have happened and uh, things like redlining that prevented black home ownership from taking place, the, uh, you know, the very racially unequal way in which the GI Bill, which created a, helped create a white middle class, but didn't uh, help create a black middle class, um, or a race, gender, or racial lines in the middle class. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that white people just don't know, and what that m means is it makes it harder to have a really good, robust dialogue. Because we're like, ah, look, there's a Civil Rights Act, uh, we had a black president, there's no slavery anymore, what do you want, right? Like, okay, okay, you want white cops to stop killing black men. Okay, if we give you that, are you done, right? Like, that, that's, not the kind, that's not a healthy discourse. And I, and, and I, know, I don't know that anybody's saying those things specifically right now, but that is the kind of, like, the, the kind of tone-deaf uh, thing that could be said, and is often said, when there is not this more robust version of a civic education. So if, you're, if, if, you're, if we're going to open up the public sphere, to the public forum, to a more multidimensional, more inclusive, more vibrant discourse that actually has as its object a set of policies that go beyond protecting rights, it's going to be extremely important that the people who are drawn into that public forum have a set of skills and a set of knowledge that makes this robust discourse possible. Um, and one of the things that might very well be debated is what are all the things to include in the curriculum? And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, and that's going to cost an awful lot to do it. But, but and, that, and uh, you know, in the liberal discourse, like, oh, but every cost is going to be a loss of personal freedom because it's going to tax people. We, we really want to tread lightly. They're like, this is important. We're, we're going to invest in our own uh, healthy public forum by spending social resources on a very vibrant form of civic education. Uh, and I do think that a civic education of, the, of this very vibrant form, historical, cultural, psychological, teaching diplomatic skills, teaching, of course, the mechanics of the political system, uh, what the opportunities are, how things go down in, in this particular democratic system, educating people about voting uh, methods, all of that is, one, going to be necessary to make the democratic system uh, function uh, well, this enlarged, unattenuated democratic system. And two, that's going to then also double down on the incentivizing people to go into the public forum. So essentially, more or less eradicating the strict boundary between the public sphere and the private sphere, between our sphere of personal liberty where individual sovereignty reigns, where we're harming other people and we're just pursuing conceiving of and pursuing our own conception of the good, and public power, which is intended entirely to maintain the harm principle boundary and provide the necessary re resources for people to make free choices. It's, there's, there's a blurring or even an obliterating of that boundary. And that is potentially very scary, uh, especially to those of us who are like, ooh, boy, that subsumes the individual. That's going to really, like, we're just going to, 
be subsumed in this public forum. That's potentially true, but the art then would be how to make sure that the preconditions necessary for that to function successfully are met. Civic education is gonna be very much one of them. I would say another one that, that would, that's likely is a, a very small level of material uh, inequality and uh, inequality in uh, social status and, and, and respect. The more inequality there is materially and in terms of uh, social status and respect, the more likely that people are gonna to come to the public forum with an adversarial perspective as opposed to a sort of open-minded perspective. The less we know about the struggles and plight of other people, the less likely we are to be able to hear and listen and really like empathize and come together. So uh, reducing those gaps of knowledge, reducing those gaps of material wealth, reducing those gaps of social status, reducing the, reducing the gaps of uh, power, uh, not to eliminate and necessarily have a totally egalitarian society, but basically acknowledging that inequalities are poisonous to a public forum. They're poisonous to our public forum too, but because we have a relatively attenuated public forum, we can kind of brush those poisonous things to the side uh, and say, well, it's just a matter of choice. If you don't participate in the public forum uh, because you're poor, that's your choice. You're allowed to do that, right? As opposed to wait a minute, one of the reasons why you're not participating in the public forum because you're poor is because one, your life is a bigger struggle and so you don't have time to dedicate to the public forum. And two, you feel like whatever is decided in the public forum is gonna screw you over anyway because you don't need your rights protected better, you need like your situation improved so that you can even care about your rights. Um, and there could be other reasons, there are lots of other reasons why people might stay out of the public forum. Um, the same thing can be said here, but the goal is to incentivize people to want to enter the public forum willingly, energetically, open-mindedly, uh, and uh, with a sense that this is a really good way of connecting us as human beings, of uh, healing the wounds that divide us, uh, of uh, also just giving us a fuller sense of, of what a self is, right? A self is not just a bubble where we make decisions inside of it, and then on the outside we have to put up with rules and regulations and other people telling us what to do. Uh, that's a very binary way, the liberal version of the public-private split is a very binary conception of what the individual is. Um, so without going any further into it, because I, I, I feel like I'm kind of in danger of doing something that I often do at this point in the lecture, which is start to just repeat the same concept with slightly different words and, and the addition of examples. I'm going to wrap up and point out just that democracy and the notion of public reason can be interpreted and viewed in either a liberal fashion or in a non-liberal fashion. And while there are certainly overlaps between democracy as a means to an end and democracy as both an end in itself as well as a broader arena for fighting over the common terms, uh, or the, the terms of our common existence, um, they, they, they are two quite different kinds of things. One of them plays nicely with liberalism and is therefore kind of a tool of liberal, the, 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 the liberal uh, worldview. Another one sees liberalism suspiciously and while not necessarily wanting to attenuate the individual and, or excuse me, submerge the individual, is looking to make there be a richer set of connections between individuals and other individuals and with their culture and their community and their nation. Uh, so democracy is, there, it's not, there's not just one species of it. There's at least two different versions. And of course, within each different version, there's going to be disagreement as to what a good democracy is supposed to look like. So I definitely don't mean to point out that there are two camps. There are essentially two styles of democracy, two, two reasons to have it. 
two overall overarching sensibilities about them, and then within each of those two sort of versions, there's going to be, as with anything, there's going to be a lot of disagreement on what, what the nature of it is supposed to be like. All right, well, that's the final sort of substantive reading-based uh, lecture for this class. The next lecture is going to be uh, sort of wrapping up and lessons learned, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know what that's going to be like. Uh, I, have to, I have to figure it out. I, I have to take time to sit and reflect on what it is that this term has left with me. Uh, because every time I teach a class, it's an exploration of material I've explored before, uh, but with obviously a different uh, time, and I'm in a different place, uh, and a lot of times with different readings, and so I don't quite know. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to sit with, like, what is, what is it that this class has come down, and I would come down to me, and I would invite you to do the same thing, right? There's no final paper topic that says, hey, reflect on, what are your lessons learned? But imagine that there were, uh, that's what I'm going to ask you to do between now and the next lecture. And now on the next lecture, you'll see my version of it, but it's absolutely not going to be the definitive version. Uh, it, and, it, and it may or may not speak to some of the things that you've taken out of this class. Until then, I'm going to say goodbye from day 82. I hope everybody's doing well.